welcome back to Four Eyes, the podcast series that gives you a clear view into the optometry world across Canada and the U.S. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Amrit Bilku. I'm Dr. Deepan Carr. Hi, I'm Dr. Ravinder Rindala. And I'm Dr. Alex Kuhn. Today, we're really excited to share an interview that we had with Dr. Richard Maharaj, a Canadian optometrist who has a special interest in dry eye disease. He is a clinical adjunct associate for the University of Waterloo College of Optometry, and he is the Canadian Association of Optometrists Section Chair of Ocular Surface Disease, the editorial board member for the Journal of Dry Eye and Ocular Surface Disease, the chief education officer at mydryeye.ca, and the co-founder for the Canadian Dry Eye Summit, a national conference dedicated for educating eye doctors in the area of dry eye disease management. He also has been making YouTube videos since about eight years ago, and his channel features awesome, informative videos that explain treatment methods for dry eye disease to patients. So these are all the reasons why we chose Dr. Richard Maharaj as the perfect optometrist to share all of his insight and knowledge and clinical experience treating dry eye disease in Ontario. We'd like to give a disclaimer that we did this interview over Zoom, and um, so there is a bit of audio lag or poor audio quality, so we apologize in advance for that. But other than that, we hope you really enjoy the episode. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the interview. For you, how long have you been doing this now? Since the March. Three months? Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, really? March, yeah. Wow, March, good for you. Launched. I mean, yes. the planning and stuff was like in December, I think. November 2019. Yeah. And when we launched, it was beginning of March. Basically, wow. before, right before COVID. Yeah. <laughs> so... Yeah. This is great. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, work. yeah. And we're excited to, you know, have you on here because, um, you know, I think for, for ourselves, we wanted to make this podcast because we're still new grads. So obviously coming right out of school, I think we felt this kind of disconnect where we're not learning something new every single day, like we were at school and in our practices, we're probably seeing almost the same type of thing every day. So we're not getting a diverse experience in different areas of optometry. So we felt sure. like this podcast was like the perfect way to get a really um, like a big variety of optometric topics. And then also to bridge the gap between Canadian and U.S. optometry. Because mm -hmm. when we were at ICO, I mean, the question was always, yeah, but what do you do in Canada if this happens? <laughs> or like, what, what do you have in Canada to prescribe? And, you know, we didn't have those resources. So we need people like you to come on here and teach us everything you know so that we can learn too. Yeah. And even on yeah. social media now, I feel like it's U.S. optometrists that kind of take over the entire platform. Yes. So it's like people like you, like yourself, that are not highlighted. And we're like, no, these, you know, you guys should be more or interviewing. Yeah. So. You know, that's, it's also, I mean, I think that's also reflected in, 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 the Canadiana culture, right? I think the KOLs in Canada that are north of the border, and there's tons of us, not necessarily looking for a stage or a platform. And I'm not suggesting that the US counterparts are doing that, but there are more uh, vocal, you know, long standing podium presenters out there that perhaps are just used to that. But the Canadiana, and what I've learned as well, just kind of speaking in Canada and the US, what I would say is that you know, Canadian CE in general, the learners there 
are truly there for the learning. And, and, and Canadian CE, whenever I've delivered it, I've noticed that the engagement is just different. Mm-hmm. You know, I've always described um, some of the conferences I spoke at in the States, it always feels like it's a bit of edutainment. You know, there's a mm-hmm. bit of education, certainly, but there's a lot of entertainment that's sliced yeah. in with that. Yeah. <laughs> but in the Canadian landscape, it's, it may be a little, in some cases, it might be a little bit more bland, but, but it taps into what I consider to be true, you know, evidence-based yeah. uh, education. Yeah. So that comes across as bland. But that's, I think that's just the Canadian in us. So, you know, we, just, we do it, we do it, we have fun with it, but, you know, in our own little way. So I think that's our Canadian culture coming through. And I think that's something to be proud of too. Fair enough, yeah. Yeah, that's actually so true because I feel like the U.S. is very, like, it's, it's very big and flashy. And, like, you know, they want to show all the cool gadgets and stuff that they have. And then Canada's all chill, laid back, sitting in the back corner, like, hmm, yeah. got that too. <laughs> That's right. Dr. Maharaj, for our listeners who might not know anything about you, uh, would you mind please telling us a little bit more about yourself? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, so first, thank you for having me and uh, uh, congratulations on your success so far. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I graduated, depends on how far you want to go back, but I graduated in 2003 from Waterloo, University of Waterloo, and um, I practiced uh, around the GTA in I'd say pretty much, at, I mean, at least at the time, every type of or mode of practice that was uh, available. So I, I did retail optometry, I uh, did um, refractive surgery consult- consultations, you know, dabbled a little bit in uh, sort of a medical uh, type of facility where it was a multidisciplinary uh, medicine clinic, medical clinic. Uh, and then I, I, I became kind of affiliated with uh, refractive surgery centers and I, I, I ended up sort of being a liaison uh, at three major Toronto centers for quite some time which is where I think I learned uh, the majority of my cornea mm. you know you'd think you'd learn it in school but you end up learning it on on the road um, so I spent a lot of time doing that and while I was doing that I opened a uh, or sorry I joined a uh, practice in Hamilton a comprehensive uh, eye practice in Hamilton as an owner as a co-owner and I partnered there for about five years. Um, so again, you had another sort of window to what I consider to be traditional optometry. I did that for five years. And at that point, I had an opportunity. The notion of starting a specialty clinic was brought past my desk. And um, I kind of looked at it. This was going to be a, and this would turn into BI labs, obviously. But this started off as, okay, well, there's an ophthalmology presence here. Uh, there is space for an optometry presence. And so I pitched the idea of, well, what about if we didn't do just general optometry? What if we paralleled much more closely, we paralleled the ophthalmology center and kind of added um, complementary services, yeah, one of which was the idea. ocular surface, right? And that was very much my experience when I did my rotations in the States, where optometry and ophthalmology were much more cohesive. It felt that way, at least. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to try to recreate that. And anyway, so fast forward a little bit, that flew and it turned out that within all the different niches that we had in the optometry side of that space, the ocular surface was, was sort of my uh, area of interest, of keen interest, and it just kept on evolving. I, I completed my fellowship at the American Academy back in just when I opened the practice. So it all kind of lined up around the same time. Um, 
and then since then, you know, I've, I've continued to do consulting and teaching and running this, this medical practice. It's a non-dispensing practice. We don't, you know, there's no glasses there. We do dispense contact lenses and other specialty services, but um, we really try to, I say we, because it is a team effort. We really try to, uh, what I think is create uh, an image of what the future of optometry can hold. And I think we've done that reasonably well. Um, and so I'm proud to, you know, practice with, with, you know, guys like Dr. Vafai, Farhan Vafai, and we've just added Dr. Uh, Karnver Kamra and our newly uh, graduated Dr. Uh, uh, Diana Nguyen. So we, we brought on some people that, that are kind of like-minded and, and want to push the envelope a little further, kind of like you guys. So anyways, yeah. that brings us to today. And I do some other stuff with the Canadian Association, the Autometry Association of Ontario, and yeah, and uh, the Journal of Dry and Ocular Surface Disease. So I keep yeah. my hands busy. Yeah, you certainly do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so just to get things started here, so what does a typical dry eye workup look like at the um, eye labs, dry eye clinic, and what's your reasoning behind using um, the particular diagnostic tools that you use? It's a great question. It's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I would say, you know, what I'm about to say is, is, is more specific to what we use. Um, and that with the context that we, you know, we're a referral based clinic. So most of the patients that are, ref are referred to us have already had some type of, you know, basic eye exam, if not advanced eye exam. So we run them through the gamut. We always start, and I think this is the most important thing with a validated questionnaire. So whether that's the speed, the DEQ5, uh, if we're doing a research, you know, a study, we're, we'll use something like the OSDI, um, but we'll use a validated questionnaire. So generally speaking, you want to move from least invasive to most invasive, okay? Because obviously everything that you do becomes more invasive. Um, so we'll start off with a questionnaire, then we'll uh, initiate with tear chemistry testing. So like tear osmolarity uh, and MMP9, we use both of those measures. Then we'll do a non-invasive tear volume test, so uh, tear meniscus height. We use, so we've been using for the last six months, a system called the dry eye analyzer, which actually is basically a slit lamp with a very slick uh, module that has these tests kind of lined up. And it's wonderful, especially now we're in a post-COVID world where we can actually do all of these tests in one room. A report is generated that has all the results and then it gets uploaded and sent to me in another room. So we're able to kind of socially distance and I don't have to spend too much time behind the microscope, but we get all these tests. So anyways, uh, tier volume, we do that non-invasively. Then we do a non-invasive tier breakup time. And the non-invasive tier breakup time is done with an infrared light source. So we're not uh, inducing reflexive tearing. Then we actually introduce staining. Okay, so we'll do fluorescein and uh, lysamine staining. So we'll still do an invasive breakup time measure, seeing as we have the stain in the eye to see how they correlate. And again, this is sort of more of a research interest rather than anything else. And then from that, we'll also capture some of the blink metrics, right? So how's the patient blinking? Uh, is there microlag ophthalmus, right? Is there complete closure on blink? And then finally, the last thing we do is we measure uh, myography as well as a secretory function of the gland. So we actually do physical uh, digital expression. And just to clarify, and for your listeners, you know, digital expression with either your thumb or with a meibomian gland evaluator or with a Q-tip um, is not meant to be uh, therapeutic. It's meant to be diagnostic. So you're just trying to release enough meibom from the gland to see what's coming out, you know, and that's very yeah. different from what I would consider to be therapeutic expression. 
that's the workup and that's that's kind of where it comes from so it's a deep dive we do a very very deep dive i want to capture as much information as possible are there any certain um dry eye diagnostic tools that are not available in canada that you wish were available in canada I, yeah you know what there's one diagnostic tool one little uh toy that i would love to to see more available and that would be um confocal microscopy i would oh. like to so the heidelberg hrt has a corneal module that allows you to uh, image the subbasal nerve plexus um, so for patients that have so i get again in our, our center we get a lot of complex pain related dry eye right so your neuropathy patients your corneal neuropathy patients so that is uh an area of keen interest of mine just i guess because i've 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 acquired a lot of patients that suffer with this and i think what we're missing in that particular uh, domain of ocular surface is the objective findings and so confocal microscopy would allow for that allow us to to and if you look at any clinical study that uh, anything from 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 Pedro's study for instance his work or uh, you know Rosenthal you'll look at at, at the data that they've collected on um, you know the morphology of, of the corneal nerves the sub subbasal plexus um, there is a ton of information that can be gleaned from that. And more importantly, I think there's an opportunity for us to actually create some type of normative database because not many people, not many academic centers actually have, it, and those that do aren't using it routinely, right? You're using it on a clinical study, for instance, but it's not being done routinely. So we have an idea of what normal is. Uh, we have an idea of what abnormal is, but it's an idea. And, you know, the distance between an idea and an actual concept, a theory, um, becoming manifest is is the data between those two points. So I'd like to see more of that for sure. And then the other toy I'd love to see, and there's a company I believe out of Japan, um, Tomi, I believe they have a, a system that captures thermography. So it measures the temperature, you know, at any given point on the eyelid, the cornea and ocular surface. And thermography is actually quite interesting. And there's been uh, there have been some studies that have looked at thermology, excuse me, and and related it to uh, dry eye and 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 helps to differentiate certain types of dry eye from, say, um, you know, a raging bacterial conjunctivitis, for instance. Based on so like, I'd like to see, I'd like to see thermography. Yeah, yeah, oh, wow. and actually, oh, lid temperature. Donald Korb did some work with with looking at, you know, the lid temperature, uh, temporal, central, nasal and looking at sort of an average lid temperature, um, the spread of temperature from temporal to nasal. And so all these things actually do, do, do make a lot of sense if you can measure it precisely and accurately. Yeah. Oh, it's really interesting. I've actually cool never stuff. heard of the thermography. I was wondering if that checking the temperature just helps you to determine if it's like an inflammatory cause or something else. Yeah, you know what, at a very basic level, you're absolutely right. It okay. can help you to di differentiate, but there are actually some finer points of differentiation between the lid. So again, you know, the, the, the delta in temperature from your temporal to your nasal upper lid, for instance, can be almost an entire degree. So if you've ever expressed glands, if you've ever expressed temporal central nasal glands with your thumb or a cotton tip applicator, you'll often find that the nasal glands tend to express the best. And that's because the central, your core temperature is always going to be highest in the center, even if it's a point or two above. And that, you know, 0.5, 0.6 degree difference 
can be the difference between you know the 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 quality of my bum. Yeah, thermography is really interesting. So mm -hmm. the iLabs Dry Eye Clinic, um, you know, on the website it does show that it offers a variety of advanced treatment options for mild to severe dry eye patients. And mm -hmm. so with your clinical experience, you know, what would you say are your most common or kind of like your go-to treatments for most of your dry eye patients? That, that's a that's a million dollar question. Um, <laughs> But it is a question that comes up often at every seat I'm at. Like, you know, what would you go to, generally speaking? And um, so with context that I practice in Brampton, a lot of our local patients are South Asian. Um, and our referred patients come from all walks of life. I can say that there is no silver bullet just because of that diversity. Um, having said that, what I would do is I would group. I would group treatments together, okay? So I'd say that there, there are treatments or therapies that could be done on the glands, thermal or light-based. So that's something like, say, Lipiflow or Ilux compared to, say, uh, an IPL, for instance. Those are two different mechanisms. I would say gland therapy is by far the biggest part of my dry practice. Within that subset, then, I wouldn't say that I have a one or the other because I, I'm, we're looking so closely at what the true etiology is. So for instance, if the patient is, has rosacea, I'm going to reach for IPL. But if they're South Asian, they can also have rosacea. It's just a lot harder to see it. Problem with IPL and, and the darker skin, the darker pigmentation is that it absorbs more light energy. So we have to be careful with darker skin and using IPL. So in those cases, I might reach for something like a thermal option, like Lipiflow, um, some colleagues use, I don't use Ilux. I've, I've, I've used it in the past. I'm familiar with it. Um, but a thermal option might be more appropriate. So I would say that gland therapy in general would be the biggest part of my practice juxtaposed to, I think the most important other elements, um, which is, you know, their at home therapy, their non-preserved lubricants, their omega threes, their, you know, at home lid hygiene. I've always described the, the treatment for dry eyes being like a table, you need to have four legs to that, that treatment table, right? If you just say, hey, we're going to use Restasis, then you you're rest assured that table is going to fall. You need to make sure you pair your pharmacy with your OTC, with your at-home OTC, uh, non-drops, with your in-office therapy. I think those four things are paramount. Yeah. You actually mentioned something that really connects with our episode that we did with Dr. Laura Perryman, because she also mentioned that you know, dry eye treatment, it's not just a one, like a one thing fixes all um, because dry eye disease has many different um, mechanisms that causes it. So you need to hit all of those mechanisms and it is going to take different methods to get there. You also mentioned yeah. the preservative free eye drops. Now in Canada, we do have a few options for preservative free drops. Um, mm. There's like the Theolaz Duo, the eye drop, and then the Hilo. Do you tend to recommend any certain type of preservative free drop for your patients or notice that they respond better to certain types? Yeah, you know, I'm just going to circle back on one thing you just mentioned there about Laura. And yeah, Laura, I'm, I'll be the first to say that I'm a, I've always been a huge Laura fanboy. I mean, um, <laughs> yeah. Laura and I are, are, are ocular surface brothers and sisters. So we, we agree on a lot. Um, she gave a shout out to you in the podcast. Yeah. Um, oh, well, well, shout out right back to her because she's, <laughs> she's, you know, she's my hero for sure. 
I've learned a ton from her and her passion for, for this subject is, is palpable whenever you, whenever you just have a quick conversation with her, you know that she's mm -hmm. in it for the right reasons. So, yeah. but I a hundred percent agree with her. Yeah, you're right. It's, 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 it's uh, her Bisto analogy yeah. is great. And it, it taps into, I think the exact cycles that any practitioner that's treating it needs to focus on. Um, so to your question about the different non-preserves, you know, in Canada, we have uh, a little bit more freedom with hyaluronate. So hyaluronate is a molecule that is very water uh, loving, water attracting. And it also has a very unique behavior on the eye in that it's, it's, it's sort of a pseudoplastic, right? So it has this plastic like behavior when there's not a lot of shear forces. So that's, you know, blinking. Um, and it has a liquid like behavior when there's no shear forces around. So it acts like a liquid. So it's in a sense, it's, it's, it's mimicking the tear film. And so I've always loved anything that's hyaluronate based. So in Canada, we have um, the offerings for hyaluronate are, are actually, you know, quite a lot more than, than when I just started iLabs. But we have, um, as you mentioned, uh, iMed Pharma, they have their eyedrop line and they've recently launched uh, eyedrop MGD, which is a hyaluronate. Uh, lipid, uh, lipid agent as well. Uh, then there's uh, Laptician who carries uh, the Thalos line and the Highback line. They also have a Thalos eye gel, which is a night ointment, uh, not an ointment, but a more viscous, a hyperviscous solution. And then you have Candor Vision uh, producing the Hilo, uh, the Hilo Dual and the Hilo Gel Experience. Those are my staples, those three, uh, those companies uh, in particular. And again, I'm going to put disclosures out there because I think it's, it's only important to do so. I've consulted with every one of those companies in the past. So I don't, you know, yes, I have skin in the game, so to speak, but I, I gain nothing from putting one over the other. In my experience, I would say that there are certain cases where the, I will go even deeper into choosing this by looking at the molecular weight of the hyaluronate. Uh, iMed Pharma has a, a very high quality hyaluronate. Okay, so their molecular weight is a lot denser, which means that the residence time in the eye tends to be longer. And their new eye drop MGD, um, I'm, I'm pretty impressed with it. So I have MGD as well. I love that drop. There's something different about it. And you know, you'd have to experience it yourself to, to understand that, but has longer residence time, doesn't blur the eye up. So I like that a lot for my MGD patients. Um, <laughs> the Thalos drop from Laptician, I like that a lot too for patients that have really high osmolarity because it is bioprotectant. So if you think about, you know, you're in Calgary, Deepon, right? So you think about your shoes in the winter and they get that salt around the edge, you want something to protect your leather yeah. so it doesn't erode. Well, well the Triolos that's in the, the, the Thalos line is just that, it's a protectant. So it helps to protect the tissues that are exposed to that hyperosmolar environment. So I really like the Thalos line. And then in the Hilo category, I've always liked their Hilo gel. Uh, for those patients, my elderly patients that are having complete uh, blinking, microlagothalamus exposure issues, I tend to put them on that as well because it does have a longer residence time. The challenge with every one of these drops is the various bottles, the multi-dose bottles. So if you've got, have you guys tried any of these so far? So I've used Hilo. A lot of my older patients have trouble using the Hilo drops. They just can't seem to the bottle properly <laughs> yeah it's and tough man it's it's really tough for a person yeah. with arthritis it's yeah. actually quite tough so, so i i think they all have their drawbacks so i don't think there's a one size fits all again that seems to be the my quote of the day but um 
you know, hopefully that description as to which ones I use when helps and the bottle, you just have to spend some time with education. I, I've always said my staff and your staff will be the most important part of your team because they're the ones that are going to offer tips. It's kind of like a contact lens patient putting them in for the first time. How do I do it? How do I keep it in my eye? So you want your staff to be empowered to give them tips. How do you get the, how do you get the drop in the eye if they have a family member or a relative that can insert it mm-hmm. for them for your elderly patients? I mean, there's, there's options. That actually does really help because um, I've tried a lot of different brand name eye drops like over the counter for dry eyes. And it's true. You really can feel a big difference with ones that absolutely do not work for you and ones that really feel good on your eyes. And even though they have very similar ingredients. So that's actually really helpful to know. Thanks. Um, okay. So I know you kind of briefly talked about these two treatments. Um, so for Lipaflow and the IPL treatment for dry eye disease, can you go into um, more in depth um, about your experiences in using these tools? Like, do you prefer one over the other in certain patients and, certain, and things like that? And then specifically for IPL, do optometrists in Ontario need certain certification or training to use it? So again, going back to what I was mentioning about Lipaflow and IPL, we'll just talk about those two because you brought them up, not because I have any preference. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, so I have always, I, so when we opened the clinic back in, in, in uh, 2012, we were the first optometry clinic to to own Lipaflow system in Canada. So we have, I have the most experience with that. So I use it a lot. I think it has great value in um, most patients that have MGD that have done nothing. So I was actually speaking to our, our fourth year clerkship student today, you know, about why we don't go to a, a hot compress first. And that's because again, most patients that are coming to us have already tried a bunch of stuff. Um, but secondly, I know both clinically with my clinical experience, as well as through the various, the massive amount of, of, of evidence uh, in, in the literature right now that supports gland clearance as a, a more effective means of treating MGD, I know that lip flow is a better option. So I, I feel um, compelled to, you know, recommend it when it's indicated, number one. And number two, not really, you know, suggest to the patient, uh, you know, we get into, I'll tell you, this is a Canadian thing. We get too caught up with, okay, there's this treatment that's much better for you. It works way more. It's FDA approved specifically for your disease but it costs this much money or it costs more than yeah. a brooder mask, for instance. <laughs> and so I don't get caught up in that conversation. I, I don't even have the conversation about pricing. I, I tell them the options. I tell them what I know. I educate them and our front team, our front staff, uh, our concierge will, will, will go through costs, et cetera. So in my experience, Lipaflow has been, been godsend for many of my patients. It's been life altering for many of my patients early on. Um, and so feeding on what I said earlier about skin type, so skin type will also help me to dictate who gets a lipoflow. So if the skin type is a darker skin type, so a Fitzpatrick, if anybody wants to know about skin typing, you look at the Fitzpatrick scale. So a Fitzpatrick four or greater, I typically will move to, to, to that patient to a lipoflow procedure. If their skin type is lighter than that, it's not a slam dunk that I'm going to put them into an IPL procedure. Um, but if there's obvious telangiectasia, uh, and rosacea, uh, signs, I'm leaning towards IPL. There are some cases where we need both. Okay. Where for instance, their MMP nine is through the roof. They have obvious rosacea. 
Um, but they've also been on, say, Zydra and Restasis for the last year, and nothing's working. Uh, in these cases, I will take a, 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 a one-two punch. And going back to Laura's um, Bisto analogy, you know, that's, that's in my opinion, uh, where IPL and Lipoflow tend to be actually complementary. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of how, how I, I look at things. So I look at skin type, I look at disease um, severity and disease etiology, and that helps to guide me. So it's not just, you know, I'm not throwing a dart and saying, oh, today feels like an IPL day. Um, <laughs> Um, to answer your question, Deepon, on uh, certification, there is no requirement at this point to certify for the use of IPL in Ontario um, and not any other province that I'm aware of. You can maybe speak to Alberta, but I, I'm not aware that there's any certification required um, because it's the application. It's, it's, it's within our scope already, the application of non-ionizing radium. So not at this point. Um, my next question is um, about amniotic membranes. So you use this for special cases of dry eye disease. Could you describe what special cases are most eligible for amniotic membranes? So for amnion, yeah, there's two different types of, uh, of amnion in, uh, in Canada. is dehydrated and cryopreserved, cryopreserved being Procara. And dehydrated uh, in Canada, we have BioD. That's the only one we have available now. In the States, you have a few more options. Um, indication so I choose amnion in cases like, so for instance, filamentary keratitis, uh, epithelial basement membrane dystrophies, corneal neuropathy. I'll, I'll reach for it because they're, I've had good success with it. And there have been some papers showing clinical uh, uh, improvement in uh, symptoms. Right, and remembering neuropathy doesn't really have, certain cases of neuropathy doesn't really have robust uh, corneal signs. So it's collection you have to be really careful with, but um, uh, those are kind of the, the, the areas that I use the most. And obviously dense, really, really, you know, four plus FK, filamentary keratitis, you know, bad, bad corneas, graft versus host, if you can get that uh, onto the eye, those are cases where it makes a lot of sense. In those cases, you know, certainly I would, I would actually get them into a scleral shortly thereafter. So I, in some cases, most types of cases, GVHD, I'll, I'll put a, a Procara on, for instance, and I'll prepare that patient to eventually get into uh, a scleral lens very shortly. Um, so those are, the, those are the applications. I mean, you know, it's a great option. Again, I don't put my hands in patients' pockets and assume that they can or cannot afford um, but uh, in cases where it's obvious, and to me, those are like the, like I said, the four plus SPK, the elementary keratitis, the, uh, the GVHT patients. In those cases, I think that this is a, a clear indication. I've even had, uh, I think I published a report on, on a patient that had HSV keratitis uh, who had some, some stromal scarring, and we caught a second recurrence, I believe it was, or a third recurrence, uh, right in the nick of time. We got a, a membrane on that. And um, we actually were able to reduce the, 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 the stromal scarring that was there previously. It was recent stromal scarring, but we were able to reduce that. And the patient's VA improved. And we got into 2025 plus or 2020 minus. Um, so I think there's other indications in uh, certainly in your, you know, your ulcers and things of that nature, depending on where you are. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of how I use it in practice. You know, how long does one treatment with the amniotic membrane tend to typically last for your patients in terms of reducing signs or symptoms? Again, very good question. I, I think it depends on the severity or what the cause is. So, for instance, for, for advanced dry eye, um, 
you know, I, I would say that I, I, by and large, I've been able to, if that's one, you know, leg of the table, so to speak, um, I've been able to do one and done in many cases and just kind of rehabilitate the surface, get everything else working yeah. and that's it. Um, there have been some cases where, you know, these, again, recurrent uh, erosions where you might have had to repeat it um, a year later. I don't think I've had a case where I've had to repeat it sooner than a year. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's Yeah, good. that's been my experience. But again, I'm, I'm very aggressive at treating everything else. Yeah. So it's, uh, like I said, it's not just a one and done. Yeah, it's more of like a support, supportive therapy for everything else that you do pretty much, right? Yeah, the analogy I give is like, look, if you have a fire, you know, you, you want to put that fire out. So I think the amnion is, is like putting a water blanket on that fire. Then it becomes easy to kind of just douse a little bit of, of water, sprinkle some water and after, yeah. you know, put some soil on it after, cover it up to get that fire out completely. But I think that initial water blanket is the most important thing. That's how I see um, amnion fitting into, into our arsenal. Yeah. And then, um, you know, since I think amniotic membrane treatment is probably pretty costly, um, do Canadian insurance companies ever tend to cover either an amniotic membrane treatment or any dry eye treatment, either fully or partially in any type of situation? So our, uh, yeah, insurance has been very, very um, slim to none in terms of what they cover for ocular surface. Um, in certain, you know, uh, uh, workplace insurance cases. So if the patient has an injury on the, uh, at work and they require, and they have a corneal, you know, abrasion that requires an amnion, then in those cases, there may be some coverage. Mm. But in my experience, it has been very, very minimal. Again, I'm in Ontario, so I'm speaking specifically to the Ontario experience. Uh, I do know that some um, more comprehensive insurance plans, you know, will um, have, some patients have received coverage for a portion of lipoflow, flow, um, but not yet IPL. And then how about with um, the government, so universal health insurance, like specifically in Ontario, OHIP? So if you're seeing me, you're seeing my face twinge a little bit here, right? <laughs> talking about OHIP in Ontario. Yeah, universal is not that universal. Yeah. Um, right now, especially in Ontario, we're in the midst of job action. So yeah. it's, uh, that hopefully paints a picture for the audience that we're, 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 we're grossly underfunded. Um, but speaking generally, um, there is no provisions for dry eye specific services, no matter how medically necessary it is. I think they've been trying to get these kind of procedures covered for a while now. I've been hearing it, hearing about it since before I started optometry school. And I don't think we've inched any closer to getting those kind of treatments covered by. Yeah, you know, you, you kind of have to be careful what you ask for, right? Because look, look, I could speak to Ontario. Ontario, at some point, we had coverage that was comparable to the cost of providing those services. But we are locked into this sort of prison right now where we have no capacity to recover our costs over and above what OHIP provides. So, you know, it's, it seems noble to ask government to help for these procedures. But I would argue that, number one, it's probably not a good idea because I don't think they have the notion, the closest understanding as to what the costs are to provide. And then number two, they have full capacity to dictate what they charge, whether it covers your costs or not. And for Amrit, for you, you know, being in the States, you probably know full well 
that that is a major problem when you have a third-party insurer, in our case here, that insurer is the government, when you have a third-party insurer dictating what they will cover and that you can't charge above that, that becomes a loss leader and that's not something that we want to get involved with. So I think we have to be careful, personally. Yeah. And so we'll talk about uh, your surgical patients. So how involved are you in co-managing patients with dry eye disease who are going, or who are undergoing ocular surgery, like LASIK, cataract, um, glaucoma surgeries? Uh, do you stay in touch with the surgeon to discuss pre or post surgical results? You know, the, the surgical conversation and the ocular surface for me is a hill that I'm willing to die on. So I've said this from day one. This is exactly where optometry can excel uh, and should excel. Handing that patient over to your surgeon, you should hand that patient over prepared for surgery, which means preparing that ocular surface. So I have a, in my facility, we have an extensive uh, preoperative preparation program where we work on, we make sure their glands are optimized, their ocular surfaces is optimized, giving Laura a shout out. You know, she, she's like, we're, we're sending our patients for premium IOL, which is like, you know, a, a high-end race car, we want to make sure they have an engine to support that. So whenever I'm sending a patient for anything, any inflammatory event that I know that my patient's going to undergo, I want to make sure that their ocular surface is prepared to handle that insult. Again, we've been doing it for a while, so we actually kind of have the reverse happening where we have ophthalmology um, sending to us to have those patients prepared for surgery, particularly the more complex corneas. Um, we will optimize that surface prior to surgery so that their biometry is accurate, right? Like these patients are pay paying for a premium IOL, several thousands of dollars, and you have a foggy window that they're going to look through. You know, that, that, that's not the best scenario. If you have a, a, a difference in diopteric value of an IOL, that's going to amount to several diopters of refractive error, of, of a refractive surprise that no surgeon wants. The, the, the role of, of optometry, in my, my opinion, when it comes to that surgical space is the perisurgical time, right? So, you know, a little exercise, this is something that I kind of grabbed from uh, doing any type of mindfulness training or anything like that. There's a, an old uh, uh, Buddhist parable, it's a story about this, this man who's just kind of standing in the field and he gets shot in the heart with an arrow, a poisoned arrow and uh, by, by some guy on a horse. And so the village people kind of gather around him, they get a surgeon, and the man who's dying starts asking, well, what was the name of the man on the horse? And, and what kind of wood did he use in the shaft? And what was the name of the horse? And what direction was he traveling in? And, and all these sorts of questions that have nothing to do with the fact that the arrow needs to be removed, right? So unfortunately, this man has no concept of what he needs to know. The surgeon knows what he needs to do, but there's a space between what he needs to know and what the surgeon needs to do, which is, I believe, where we come in, right? So we need to fill that gap. We need to somehow tie the patient to their, their endpoint, whether it's surgery or whether it's treating the dry eye or whether it's treating their vision therapy or whether it's treating their... Their, their glaucoma, we are the space between. We are equipped with the information and the education to, to be able to kind of point them in that direction. So I think that pre-surgery, that's a space that, that we need to be, I will say, we need to be better at that. 
So I really agree with you there. I feel like collaborating with ophthalmologists is really important, especially for me. I feel like that, that just really gets the patient the proper care that they need in all aspects of their you know, ocular health. And um, that kind yeah. of leads into the last topic that we wanted to ask you about today. So, you know, dry eye disease is known to have some sort of psychological component. You know, there's been reports that dry eye symptoms can lead to frustration, depression, and even suicide in some people. So have you ever come across patients that have been psychologically impacted by the disease? And if so, how are you approaching and managing this you know, area of dry eyes? Every single day, right? So especially now we're post-COVID. So I've, I've kind of opened up my specialty clinic to full-time. So every single day there is a patient that has some type of uh, psychological component to their disease. Um, in general, you know, there is a high correlation between anxiety, depression, and dry eye. It's, it's in the literature. Even if you do a cursory review of it, you'll find it. Um, I have a few theories on that. I, 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 I believe that the a part of the disease is also neurological. It's neurotransmitter related. And so these patients that are you know, in an anxious state have a heightened sort of sense of anxiety. Their neurotransmitters are firing like crazy. And they've probably been firing like crazy for a while. So it's no, it's no surprise to me that their corneal nociceptive endings are also being stimulated at a higher rate and are likely more susceptible to, you know, quote unquote injury or symptoms that, that are disproportionate to the signs. So I'd say that it's a huge component. So I'm also mindful of the fact that I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, and I'm not about to diagnose anybody as having the, any of those things, but I am attuned to those patients. I, I've seen enough. And I am attuned to the fact that this patient is, is like that, the Buddhist parable where he's worrying about the name of the man that shot the arrow into his chest and not the fact that the arrow needs to come out. So in those cases, I will certainly have the conversation with him about accessing help for their mental health. Um, and, uh, you know, my wife's a social worker, so we've been married for 10 years. We have two kids. You know, mental health is a big part of our family discussion. So I, you know, I, I listen a little bit more. I think I listen better now than I than I did in the past. Um, but I'm the first to kind of point them in the direction and make sure they're getting help. I think that that we could all stand to sharpen our mental acuity, whether that's for you know the reasons of of managing a disease or whether it's just to be your best self. I think um, making that recommendation does not hurt, um, but you can be very specific in patients. That have uh, that have dry eye. That there is very likely a relationship there. So if there's one piece of advice I can give any anybody that's treating this, that when you suspect it, talk about it to the patient, and and within your own you know context, determine if you feel as though that patient is safe for themselves, right? And then once you've done that, your job is done. Meaning you refer them to get help. Don't try to help them yourself. You refer them to get help. You're not, we're not trained to do that. That's not our job. But make sure you, you have a team around you. You know where to send these patients to. Yeah, I agree. That's why I feel like you brought it up perfectly. Like, um, I feel like every time there's a conversation about dry eye disease, the psychological component doesn't really show up as often. And I felt like that was a really important thing to make sure that people know to be more collaborative in your care and make sure that you're 
at least offering a referral or even mentioning it in your brochure pamphlets, you know, when you're mentioning what dry eye disease is all about, so that the patient can also be aware that, you know, some of my symptoms that I'm feeling might be from dry eye disease and, and it all makes sense now. So yeah, thank you for yeah. that. That was great. And you know what? I'll add one last little piece here. So our recently graduated uh, former clerkship student, Diana Nguyen, uh, she just started um, a blog and a Facebook group for patients called My Dry Eye Space. And it, the sole intention really is to give them a space to speak openly, to get, you know, some guidance, not direct, not medical device, uh, advice, but some guidance on, you know, information that's out there, but to really give patients the space to have a conversation about their experience. Heartfelt kudos to her for doing that. And I think, I mean, my patient, I've, I've pushed my patients to that and they've started entering that group. So I would recommend anybody to listen to this, you know, go to the Facebook group, My Dry Eye Space and get your patients enrolled there. Yeah. Um, just have them sign up. They can share their stories. They can help other patients. You know, it's about everybody helping each other. We're, we're a large community and, you know, technology brought us a lot closer. So yeah. visit it, check it out. Really good. It's good to have a space where everyone can kind of share their stories and their experiences so they don't feel alone. So that'll be really helpful. I definitely shared my stories with Deepon, Rav, and Alex about <laughs> my dry eyes are so. Yeah. It's amazing um, that we could feel alone in a world where, first of all, we're able to do what we're doing right now. But it, it, it's in, it, to me, it's sometimes it's sort of paradoxical that we could feel so alone in a world where we are more connected than we ever have been. Yeah. I find that to be really, really interesting and very telling. Well, Dr. Maharaj, you basically answered all of our questions that we wanted to ask you. Um, so did you want to add anything else to the conversation? Um, well, thank you. First of all, I'll say thank you. Uh, it was great. I, I, enjoy, I, I enjoy these conversations. I, I mean, I, I think that, again, what you two are do, or you four are doing um, in this podcast, I think it's fantastic. Having conversations, it's great. Um, I'll put a little plug quickly for uh, the Canadian Dry Summit, which was previously a live meeting. It is now a virtual meeting, which will be taking place in November this year. Um, and so we've changed it up. We're going to have more of a, a dynamic uh, weekend event virtually where we'll have live demos. Um, we'll have uh, sort of faster paced CE. Uh, we're still making it accessible. So if you visit uh, dryeyesummit.ca, um, that's where tickets are available and they're on sale now and it's in November and it is a must attend. <laughs> must attend. But um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing all the in-depth and insightful information that you had and um, we really enjoyed it and I am 100% sure that uh, our listeners will definitely enjoy what you had to say as well. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you very Thank much. You both. Thank you to everyone for listening to Four Eyes. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating to give us feedback on how we're doing. You can also check us out on Instagram at Four Eyes Optum for more content. Look out for new episodes every Wednesday. So until then, stay tuned. Mm -hmm.